Hey everyone, and welcome back to Haas and Company. This is Matt Wilhelm, also known online as Will Black Vetty. In the spirit of keeping things short and sweet, that 30 to 45 minute conversation to get you to or from work, school, or your favorite car meet this week or weekend, let's get the show started. Our guest today hails from Toronto, Canada, and is calling in from Dallas, Texas. He is a passionate business owner multiple times over now, having built and sold his first company before turning 25. He is currently the global director at McDermott and Bio Solutions, and on his weekends, chases horsepower and adrenaline. Let's welcome George Monteith to the pod. Hey, man, how's it going? How's Dallas this morning? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm, I cannot complain, man. Got, got a great guest on the podcast. Got a, it's a rainy, dreary Sunday morning over here in Tampa, but um, it's not quite par for the course, but we'll take it. I can't complain. Well, I hear you. It's kind of the same over here in Dallas. Now, we got sunshine, but it was about 27 degrees when I woke up this morning, and that was way too reminiscent of my early days back in Canada. I left the frozen north for a reason. That's right. And uh, from what I understand, you actually came down to Tampa from Canada. Is that correct? I did. I did. I was about 13 years old and, you know, worst time ever for a young man to move. I was just exiting, uh, you know, middle school, going into high school. And then I get the news from my parents that, hey, we're not just moving. We're leaving the country altogether and going down to Florida. Uh, So that was definitely culture shock. Left Canada, small town, uh, outskirts of Toronto, you know, very, uh, uh, very sheltered to boom. Here's Tampa, different country, different city, different everything. And by the way, you're starting public high school with, I mean, we had a very small school up there and uh, there was like, I think three or 500 kids in this class. So uh, yeah, definitely a bit of culture shock, but uh, it was a good adjustment in the long run. I am very thankful to have come down. Absolutely. So kind of give us your origin story, man. Um, I'm guessing it started down here in Tampa and kind of Walk us through what got you first into motoring or, you know, was was it motoring first? Kind of give us your backstory. Well, you know, it was interesting. Most guys get into cars and motoring because of their dad or something like that. Mine was the complete opposite. My dad was not a car guy. To him, it was just transportation. It was how to get you from A to B. He just didn't really have much interest in it. He he was more into boats and uh, he loved Cessnas, small planes, float planes. That was kind of his passion. And uh, I think my dad, he and I are so much alike. We butted heads all the time that uh, because he didn't like cars, I always subconsciously was like, I'm going to love cars. And I just got addicted to the rush and the power and the sounds. I always love mechanical things. So it really started when I moved down to Florida and, uh, First car I ever saw, and I remember I was at my younger brother's, he was doing like a little t-ball baseball thing, and we were in Tampa, and uh, one of the dads, this was in the early 90s, pulled up, he had a brand new 93 Cobra, and that was the first time I ever, of all things, saw that car, and I was like, man, that is sweet, and so I remember I was just about to turn 15, I was probably, oh, about four or five months into being 15, and I was begging my dad, you know, to get a car, help me get a car, what would we do, and of course, He's like, well, you're going to get me, get the hand-me-down 87 Jeep Cherokee, which, you know what? It drove, it had wheels, it was cool. So I was down for that. And then I kept working on my dad a little bit. He agreed, and this is where the car guy in me truly was born, to uh, fix the car up a little bit, or the Jeep, I guess, to say correctly. So got some wheels and tires, got some special suspension, lifted up a little bit. And then being a 90s kid, it was all about car audio. So did the speakers, did a new deck in the dash, amp, and then that is where I discovered the world of subwoofers and had a custom sub made. And, uh, oh, man, I tell you, it was quite the thing back then to have a badass audio system. And Yeah, uh, you 90s guys, all of you guys, oh. loved your audio systems. 
Yeah, I, I don't know why, and I kind of shake my head, to be honest, looking back at it. But, man, it was the thing. Like, we were so into it, and digital sound processing was just becoming a thing. And you'd have separate EQ. It was like a second deck in your dash, and that was just all your EQ and processing. And it was ungodly expensive back then, too. I mean, just like 10x what it was now. But uh, that was the thing. So, All right. And then um, what sprung you uh, back, from what I understand, you left Tampa. Uh, you made your way over to Dallas first after Tampa. Um, what 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 was your evolution in this uh, car guy persona from the audio in this, this old Cherokee years? What what got you on over? What was the next evolution in George the car guy? So definitely moved over to uh, moved over to Dallas Fort Worth from Tampa, and uh, it's kind of interesting actually. Um, it was my parents' best friends that got us to move over to Texas. And when we had left Canada, they had moved uh, to Dallas when we moved to Tampa. And my dad's best friend uh, came down and became the chief of orthopedics for Baylor here in Dallas and was the team doctor for the Dallas Mavericks, the basketball team. So we'd always spend holidays and come over here. My parents really just fell in love with Texas and the vibe and the culture. And I, I think at the end of the day, they really wanted to be near their friends. So we all moved over. It was going into my senior year of high school. And this is where I met one of my best longtime friends, Seth Archer, and he and his dad were car guys. And he had that traditional car guy relationship with his dad, and they were into detailing. And his dad had, uh, it was an old Dodge Stealth RT twin turbo, one of the all-wheel drive, all-wheel steering twin turbos that was the same as the Mitsubishi VR4s. Exactly. And um, so I got to a point where I was able to trade the Jeep in. I got myself an Eclipse. Now, it wasn't one of the turbo Eclipses, but it was close enough. And Seth and I spent our entire college years, we were, you know, swapping out mufflers. And I mean, no, nobody made anything for imports. This is before imports was a thing. But it was like, well, you can get a Flowmaster muffler for a truck. So let's find an exhaust shop that weld one of those onto one of our cars. And then his dad went out and got him a Dodge Ram. And uh, it was one of the ones, uh, it had a, God, was it, it was a 5.9. It had the bigger... Uh, bigger V8 in it. And then he did a dual exhaust on that. And then Bilstein shocks. And this is where I started to really become a car guy and getting into the actual modifying of vehicles. And, uh, I've, uh, been broke ever since or maybe that was uh, maybe the better way to put it is that's why i've been very career focused and uh made sure i made a good living because uh cars are probably worse than a drug addiction at that point and uh, a lot of us listening are like yeah i pretty much just pay for the hobby with my job a hundred percent the old adage of i don't love what i do but i love what i can do with what i make and, it, exactly so, and, and, you know, it's funny, Matt, I think back to those days and, you know, kind of getting into college days and in my 20s and life seems so much simpler then because we, you know, right out of high school, I went to work for LG Motorsports and I worked for Lou. I worked, uh, this was back when his son Lewis before he had G-Speed and uh, they were racing Trans Am series cars and he and I were working the shop. I was doing sales, trying to figure out what I wanted to do uh, college wise and stuff and those days, I mean, we would work in that shop doing performance parts, working on the race cars, and we would all be like, okay, let's put a nitrous kit on your car. Let's, uh, you know, let's change up suspension. Let's load, go into drag radios. And everything was based around the next Friday, getting to the track to go drag racing. Like that was our entire lives. Life was so simple back then. Did, did your background working at LG um, and, you know, getting, working through college, did your college education, uh, was it influenced by any of this? Or did you have a totally separate path in college? 
To be honest, Matt, I didn't know what I wanted to do in college. In fact, uh, we'll go into a bit of a funny story. So I actually got married super young to my ex-wife when I was 19, and she was 30. Um, so go ahead, laugh. Wow, cougar, man. My, my wife is a cougar of a month and a half, so I, I always get that in. Yeah, th- this was a solid 10 years. And uh, yeah, this was before cougars were even a thing. And uh, yeah, ne- needless to say, and uh, I'm sure my father basked in the glory of this, it did not work out well. <laughs> but when we got together, I got very unserious about college and it, it stopped going. And it wasn't till after um, that I really focused on building a career and, and getting back into school. But I really loved cars. And I didn't find a good connection for how college education cars could go together. But because my experience at LG, one of my best friends uh, who later went on to run uh, run and own Hot Rods of Dallas got me a job at Boardwalk Portion Audi. And I actually started there driving a parts truck for seven bucks an hour from their main dealership facility about a half a mile down the road to where their PDI facility was. And I did that for about, uh, about a year. And then Larry Irby, who was the parts manager back then, he approached me. He's like, you know, you're a hard worker. You're, you know, you're doing a good job. Would you be interested in becoming the parts warehouse manager? And I was like, yeah, I could do that. And so then I got a little bump up. I think it was like 12 bucks an hour, you know, Hard, hardly living well. But, uh, you know, just kept showing up, kept putting in the work. I got to be around all these badass Porsches. And, you know, it's a very affluent part of Dallas, uh, right off the tollway in Plano, Frisco wasn't really even a place yet. Mm-hmm. And they had a lot of roof cars, roof Porsches come in and seeing those and understanding from a lot of the guys back in the shop, the intricacies and the level that roof built their cars started to, you know, fuel that passion again for me. And eventually, uh, the service manager came out and said, Hey, would you like to train? You know, we'll teach you and become a technician. And that is where everything kind of went lights out for me. So I jumped at the chance and that was the opportunity where I could really make a good living. I could afford to put myself back into college. I could pay for my college without going into deep debt. And that's really where my life transformed. Now I'm, you know, I'm divorced at this point. I've literally had nothing. This was kind of my rebirth, if you will. And, uh, from there, I worked at Boardwalk as a technician for many years, and then uh, a partner and I decided we were like, you know what? Instead of doing this for somebody else, we should do this for ourselves. So after, uh, gosh, this would have been in about 2003, give or take, uh, we left and started MS Performance, which was Monteith Specialty Performance. And we focused on Porsche, Audi, and Volkswagen high-performance and this was the time when the B5S4, the twin turbos were the big thing and everybody's doing RS4 conversions and the Volkswagens with the 1.8Ts. And, you know, we were one of the first people in the country building, you know, five, six, 700 horsepower uh, RS4 converted S4s in the US and ordering parts from Germany and kind of figuring that out and working with Revo tuning and guys like this trying to figure out how to tune European cars because everything up to then had been very domestic focused. It was Trans Ams and LS1s and Fox Body Mustangs. You know, I've got to cut my teeth on probably 20 Fox Bodies I've owned in my life. But the Euro cars were so different and they were so more, so much more refined. Um, so that's really when I went full in and I, uh, I was going to school part-time and I was running that business and that was kind of my mid twenties. Wow. So all of that in the span of about shoot, that'd be seven years then that you moved to Dallas yeah. and you had this, honestly, it sounds like you had like a, a, your first, like this is your first life. Like, I'm, you know, I said, 
like I wanted to call this like the genesis of George. And it sounds like you were on like day two <laughs> and you've already done. Oh, oh yeah. I, I mean, that, 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 that was chapter one or chapter two, you know, however you want to look at it. And uh, you know, it's funny, Matt talking to you, I haven't really thought back on a lot of these memories and in, in ages and uh, man, it was a roller coaster. Like, you know, just saying it out loud and, you know, materializing those words makes me realize just how much happened in such a short amount of time. Absolutely. And I wanted to backtrack because a lot, including my, a lot of us, including myself, um, there's a few things that I'd like to fill in the gaps with in this story. Yeah, for sure. Um, when you first started at uh, Porsche, uh, you were a driver back and forth from a dealership, and you said PDI. Is that the parts and like distributing uh, center? Um, can you explain? Yeah, absolutely, Matt. So what it is is PDI is pre-delivery inspection. So what had happened is the dealership, they had outgrown their footprint because they had done a portion of Audi dealership in one facility and both were growing so rapidly in this part of Dallas. They had actually rented shop space and built some bays on the backside of a church uh, over in Plano, Texas here. And we had a few technicians that worked over there. And this is where all the 18-wheeler car haulers brought all the brand new Porsches and Audis in. And so I was driving parts from the main dealership where the parts warehouse it was over to the PDI and they'd be doing things like uh, putting the windshield wipers on. They take all the plastic wrap off. They'd flash the ECUs, do all the programming, uh, things like that. Basically get the vehicles, you know, make ready is another term most people know um, to get the, the vehicles ready to be sent over to the main dealership and sold understand so with that said it sounds like you were seeing a lot of the process before somebody's buying a car before it's you know or going to the showroom floor going to the lot i'm sure this was igniting a fire like i really need to be more in on this am i wrong or um no no you're you're absolutely right and really it was the it was the dealership culture so it was a blessing and a curse because we were kind of the redhead stepchild you know we were all kind of over at that other facility there and I really loved that the guys were kind of the lone wolves over there. They kind of, they marched to their own drum. They were a little bit out of sight and they kind of, and they'd have music blaring in the shop. They'd like get grills out and grill at lunch. It was almost like a little community. And I really, I really thrived on that. And when I had the opportunity to become a technician, start training, they actually put me over at that PDI facility to learn. And being over there and we had access on the weekends. So that's really where it ramped up my passion for the performance and the racing side, because we'd be able to pull our cars in and work on them on the weekend and use the lifts and use the welders and use all the facilities. And that's what really leveled me up to the next, you know, the next level in the game, so to speak, as far as modifying cars and really building that burning passion inside me for it. Absolutely. And it, and it sounds like you were almost reverting back to just a few years ago, you know, just exactly as you described it, um, that that culture of we're going to bring our cars in, we're going to work on them ourselves, we're going to trial and error because the foreign car market, either Japanese or European domestic market, uh, the modification, you know, world wasn't quite up to speed with the USDM things, you know, it's just it wasn't as you were saying, just wasn't there yet you were taking Flowmasters from trucks and putting on your clips. Almost the same deal. Am I wrong again, or am I on the right track? So yeah, it was definitely very similar. The European cars at that time, nobody was really modifying them. It was all aesthetics. There was really not much in the performance way of modifying these. In fact, you know, I started primarily with Audis and Volkswagens and hopping those up, and that was almost unheard of. But what really started the interest in that 
is Audi and Volkswagen basically share the same platforms. You know, the Volkswagen Bug and the Audi TT are the exact same car, just a different body on it, but the chassis is the same. It's the same engine. And then with the Audi S4s, they had that 2.7 liter twin turbo with all wheel drive and a six speed. And nobody really gave credit to that. It was all about, uh, you know, V8s and muscle cars. You got to remember, this is around the same time frame when the uh, LS1 Camaro and the Trans Ams came out and the LS1 came into the vet in 97, as you know. And, you know, it was all about American muscle. And here we were playing around with these European cars, but realizing they could make some crazy power. So kind of going back to my roots, I did a lot of work with Fox Body Mustangs. They were cheap. They were affordable to build. That's what I was actually driving at that time. I got rid of the Eclipse and got into a Fox Body. And, uh, but I went with, a, a, God, what year was it? Is it 80, 86, I believe, SVO and had the four-cylinder turbo motor, but it was making about 310 horsepower, which back then was, was pretty good for a four-banger. It, uh, it was different, but it had a cam, so it kind of sounded like it had a choppy idle. It was a really weird car, but kind of cool. Um, but long story short, you got to think about when the Fox bodies first came out with the, you know, the infamous five liter V8, they only made like 215 horsepower. These were not high horsepower cars. They were just super light. They're basically made of recycled beer cans and they had some torque, uh, but you could modify the crap out of them. But we had 1.8 liter turbos in these Audis and these Volkswagens that with a better intercooler, a little bit of tuning and cranking the boost up. You could make, you know, two, 250. I built one A4 with a big turbo and some uh, uh, tubular manifold and uh, methanol that, you know, made like 350 horsepower through an all-wheel drive six-speed. And, you know, this stuff was just unheard of at that point in time. So it really was kind of the, not even a rebirth, but a birth of that European and, you know, the uh, JDM market was just starting to emerge too. And it was really for the first time ever getting to a level where it could give domestic muscle a bit of a run for its money. And it's also the first time that I realized the value of traction. You know, when you're younger, you just think about horsepower and, you know, big numbers and that whole kind of dino queen mentality, but getting it to the ground and actually being able to use that power was 75% of the challenge. And if you had all-wheel drive turbo cars, they'd whole shot these big V8s and leave them in the dust. And then you're playing, you know, a chase is a race game and it didn't always fare so well. So it was a, it was a really super time to, you know, be young and be that deeply ingrained in this like emerging market within the performance industry. Absolutely. And, and you're talking about learning a lot for yourself. I mean, it sounds like you're having these realizations, you're, you're learning by doing, which is the number one way to learn anything we all know. How did you take those lessons from tinkering on things um, uh, with your, you know, just a few years prior to tinkering on things now over at this PDI facility to becoming a technician, um, you know, and going through this, the, the tech school for Porsche? How did that all translate? Was it a seamless transition or do you kind of have to get rooted back into, hey, this is this is what we do at Porsche. You know, you have to follow the, the, the book. Was it like that or correct me if I'm wrong? I, you know, Matt, it was a bit of both. Really what it was is, let me put it in, in terms, it, it was the difference of doing surgery with a broadsword and then learning how to have an artful touch with a scalpel. 
you know, we would hammer things out. We would slam things together. We, we would just figure out a way to make it work. But then when I started to work for Porsche and work with Audi and get factory training, we realized, or I began to realize the methodology, the precision, the way it was engineered. And it really made me think about it in a, in a bigger and grander scale. And you started to understand how all the things integrated and the way they did it. And there's all these things called specialty tools. You don't just kind of use adjustable wrenches and stuff for everything. It's like, oh, well, there's actually a special socket for this. And there's a special thing for that. And you know, it was designed to work this way. And so it was really about kind of a renaissance and you know, rebirth of learning the why behind this passion and the how. And really that same process carried me through my career and even into business and some of the businesses I started because I took that same approach of I would figure things out, but then I realized the value of education and mentoring to figure out the intricacies of really how to take rudimentary knowledge into a masterful art and executing on a higher level. And it all really started with working on cars and being that shade tree mechanic, but then the transformation into an actual technician. With, with that said, you had a much, uh, I hate to put it this way, but more, much more professional hold on things now that you were like, you are this Porsche mechanic, you're at this one dealership versus your prior engagements. Um, there's a little bit more of a, um, I guess resp- it's, I wouldn't say responsibility, but there's a different weight to what you're doing now. Um, I'm sure there's a different weight on the, the cars you're working on. And I was wondering, and I'm, I'm tying this into a question to um, just exactly after, you know, right after this one. But a lot of these cars were from big folks in Dallas. There's a lot of money in Dallas. And um, I was wondering what your some of your favorite jobs were on your favorite cars while you were at Porsche being a technician. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I can tell you one of my favorite moments. Well, I'll, I'll answer your first question. My favorite cars were the roof Porsches when they came in. There were a few guys in Dallas here, very successful entrepreneurs that had roof built Porsches. And I don't know if you know much about roof Porsches, but they are the only company that can go into Porsche Germany on their assembly line and pick unvin tubs up take them and actually vid them as roof vehicles. So they are Porsche tubs, but they are actually built as roof vehicles. That that was uh, my next question. I wanted to prelude. um, I wanted you to uh, kind of describe what roof was for the folks who aren't in the Porsche, you know, community and all my Porsche fans can just skip this little section. So they are, think, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So, so think, uh, you know, as AMG is to Mercedes or, uh, you know, anything of that nature, but imagine it 10X. So they actually took Porsche engineered chassis, but turned them into their own roof bin vehicles. They had roll cages that were integrated behind the interior. You couldn't see the roll cages in these cars. They were built into the framework of the car. Roof had their own engines they'd build. They were based off Porsche engines, but the pistons, the rods, you know, the head studs, the porting, the cams, everything was to roof spec. All the You know, they used factory ECUs, but all the tuning and the calibration, everything was done to roof spec, their own suspension, roof valving, roof control on the on the uh, the actual cylinders in the shock. 
um, their own coil springs, their own wheels, uh, tires were maybe the only semi-universal thing. The the shocks were uh, unique. The airbag emblems, you know, they had their own roof steering wheels, roof airbags. Uh, roof had their own gauges. You would actually have a roof instrument cluster in the car, just completely next level. Um, and if anybody wants an interesting exercise, go look up the uh, CTR Yellowbird. There's some pretty cool original videos. I think you can still find them on YouTube. And the Yellowbird was really one of the cars that made Roof an iconic name in the Porsche world years ago. So it's entirely proprietary. It's all built under their facilities. Correct. Yeah, just, just the original frame, the original tub is purchased from Porsche without a VIN number. So it's literally sold as a spare part, if you will. Awesome. So, all right, Porsche people, you can now tune right back on in and we will uh, continue, <laughs> continue the rest of this. But I did want to pause because a lot of folks just don't know. Um, yep. and I, and as educational as I want to make this and as insightful as I want to make this, I wanted to add that in. Um, so moving on with your story. Um with that said, it sounds like you returned to school while you are right after this. Um, I'm sorry, no, you you started your MS performance uh, right after your your Porsche Tech uh, gig. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it was. And really, my my as good a plan as a 20 something year old has at that point in their life was now that I was a technician, I could make enough money to afford to put myself back in school without taking a bunch of loans and going deep in debt. I'm sure you understand. I mean, having been through med school and everything, it's even worse now than it was then, but education is really expensive. And that's, that's kind of a daunting task to take all that on. So um, can you kind of run us through how you started the performance company with you and your friend, um, what it, what it looked like to build something from the ground up, you know, did you rent your first garage? Did you buy your first garage? Uh, did, was it just you and him working on cars? Did you employ, um, other folks, you know, kind of walk us through that. And then I, I still want to get down your professional road and, uh, and so on and so forth, but let's start there. Yeah, for sure, Matt. So, I had a good friend of mine, Mark Benitez. He was a technician at Audi uh, right beside me. We, you know, Porsche and Audi was integrated. So, you know, got to kind of mention that, you know, this, this was one of the only dealerships in the country where Porsche and Audi were under the same roof. I mean, you'd be working shoulder to shoulder. It, it was all basically the same. It was all owned by Boardwalk at the time. And it was all kind of integrated together. Um, so he was an Audi guy. I was a Porsche guy. I did Audi work too. You know, we just kind of did whatever needed to be done over on that PDI side. Well, he had a good friend of his. Um, that owned a window tinting shop and he was moving into a new facility on East side, the old side of Plano. And I had a shop space in the back that they weren't going to use all of it for uh, window tinting. It was called Moonshadow, and he owned one of those franchises. Um, so Martin had got talking to him and he said, you know, if you guys wanted, you could have part of this shop space in the back if you wanted to buy a lift and have one lift in there and a place to put some toolboxes. And, you know, really, we had the opportunity to run a business inside that business. Um, so I was like, yeah, let's do this. And, you know, Martin was very much he was more your classic, just wanted to work on cars, didn't really want to talk to people as much, but we really had a passion for training the ranches and I enjoyed talking to people. I enjoyed the social side. I, you know, enjoyed the, the bench racing and the bragging and the talking about horsepower. I was like, man, I'll take the business, you know, kind of sales side of this primarily. I mean, small business, you do whatever you got to do to get it done. But those were kind of the lines we drew in the sand, so to speak. And, uh, 
So we started saving up the money we were doing, and uh, I started using some of the money that I was going to put towards university towards uh, getting the shop, and we were able to save up enough money to buy a lift and get all the things we needed, start an LLC. I had to figure out how the heck to do that. And, uh, you know, at that point in time, this was probably, uh, you know, 05 time zone, 04, 05. You know, the internet wasn't what it was today. YouTube wasn't what it is today. It was just much harder to find that information, but, uh, you know, figured out how to set up an LLC and set up a bank account. And, you know, we had a buddy that worked at a vinyl company to get some stickers. So we got a sticker for the side of the building, you know, a vinyl sign and, you know, we, we just, we were a couple of young, dumb kids just doing our best to figure this thing called business out. And, uh, you know, it became successful and we got business. And this is where I first really learned the power of social media and social media back then, you know, Facebook wasn't even really a thing. It was more just something college kids used, but message boards, that's where it was at. And there was a couple of, uh, there was North Texas Audi Club, and there was another one for Volkswagens, which you have to forgive me, I don't remember the name, but they were very powerful local Dallas-Fort Worth message boards. And that's where we really started, without knowing it, doing organic uh, social outreach and growing the business. There wasn't really a term for it, but that's just kind of what we leveraged. And we'd go to, I mean, they didn't even have cars and coffee back then. You People just collected in parking lots and then went to the drag strips on Friday nights. And, you know, we put stickers on the cars and we just went out. We, we were social and we networked and we talked to people and, you know, exactly what the cars and coffee has become now. That's kind of how we built the foundation for this business and got a little bit, a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger uh, opportunities and jobs. And then, uh, you know, after a year or two of doing that, we actually got to the point where we were building some full-blown, uh, you know, RS4 converted S4 Audis. And uh, one of our first uh, clients who I actually ended up selling that business to, Carson Garrison, uh, it was really his car that came down from Colorado that really launched us because he had had it at a place outside of Denver. I don't remember the name of the shop, but it had been there for like 11 months and he had spent... You got to remember this is back in like 05, $14,000 with them. And he still didn't have a running car. And so he had it towed back, had it brought down here and, uh, you know, basically just threw himself at our mercy. He's like, can you guys please help us, you know, help me figure this out? Like I've spent a literal fortune. Carson was a waiter at the time. He was working at Nobu here in Dallas as a trainer, you know, and, and that was a ton of money. Um, so, you know, we didn't really know exactly what the plan was, but Martin and I looked at it the same way we looked at, you know, kind of our transition to becoming technicians. It's like, look, we know enough, we can figure this out. It's just going to take some time and some dedication. We will figure this out. And we did, and we got it running and it became the fastest, you know, RS4 converted S4 in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And that's where I built relationships with Revo Tuning out on the West Coast. And they were cracking ECU codes and figuring out how to do boost modulation and, you know, really figuring out the engineering behind it of what control boost, how was it done in the, uh, you know, in the hex code in the ECU, what was triggering it? Was it based on torque numbers? Everybody thinks, oh, boost control is easy. It's done by PSI. Well, not really. When you look at the way manufacturers uh, structured logic in their ECUs. A lot of it's driven off torque numbers and input sensors and things like that. And to actually figure out how to, how to scale and adjust these things becomes a super complex uh, process. And so really partnering up with Revo back then 
we did them a lot of service because we said, hey, we need help doing this. We'll do R&D for it. You know, just keep sending us files. And they were one of the first people to have a flash device. And so we'd flash, we'd log, we'd go back and forth. And this is kind of the, this is the very early fundamentals of what really became what you know now is kind of the HP style platform. But this was just in its most infancy of infancy at that point. And uh, it's just a super cool experience, but we figured it out. Sure. And, you know, I wanted to touch on first, I'm definitely bringing you down memory lane. So uh, it's it's very cool to listen to. I was maybe 12 at this time and uh, it was just hearing what (laughs) things were like just, I mean, 20 years ago towards today i mean this was the birth pangs of as you said tuning and uh, honestly really tuning with ecus and in, in the in the birth of complex computers in the automotive you know world um and then you also answered my question regarding how you marketed this small shop that was in the back of a tent shop um and the power of what message boards were back then the lack of social the true social media you, you kind of hit on everything man um you, you beat me to my own questions and you, you also asked, what, what did you guys work on? And you also mentioned it was European. So, you, I mean, you're, you could, you know, run my own podcast for me, man. That was awesome. <laughs> you literally answered everything. Um, with that said. Well, what, you know, what, what's interesting, Matt, is it, it's really just those are the factors that become the evolution of any business. You know, what? Whether it was my corporate career that I've I've had in the engineering space, or whether any of the you know the coffee company I owned, or the current company I own, the Iron Cartel, which is an apparel and supplement company, you kind of look at all those sectors as you piece a business together when you're looking at scaling a business. So really, those life lessons I learned, messing around blindly, fumbling, falling, and getting back up and dusting the you know dusting it off in that small business is really what laid the foundation for everything that's made me successful ever since. None of it really came from my formal education. It was those, you know, tried and true in the streets business lessons I learned back then that have paid off the most. I'm glad I have a real job because you're really taking my whole job as a podcast interviewer away. You're literally answering everything because <laughs> honestly, my next question was like, you know, you, it, you're adapting. Like you learn to adapt from 2004 to 2024 and what it takes to, you know, grow and market a business. And you, you literally just kind of gave that stepwise progression of first that exactly what I said, but then what I was going to ask later on down. So, man, you're, you're crushing. I'm sitting here like, oh, man, like. This is this is too easy. This this guy's the best. Um, <laughs> I appreciate then, that. And then you did hit on the fact that, and that I was going to prelude to this that, um, you know, the for the, the formal education that I presume you um, received down the road eventually. I was wondering, does that come into play ever? Because it sounds like you know, and we I grew up. My parents grew up telling me like you're going to go to college, and uh, the millennial generation we only heard you're going to college, and it sounds like almost everything you learned so far was not learned in college. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but you know, did it, what, what was your path from there then if you sold the company and to where you are, I know there's a huge gap to fill and we're nearing the end of our time, but, um, kind of fill us in if you could. So when I came around to thinking about selling the company, how that came about, 
is Brad, who I had mentioned that uh, lived in the same apartment complex. I'd gotten to know. I'd always admired him and his life, and he seemed to travel a lot. He seemed to make lots of money. He was always working from home when he wasn't traveling. And he approached me one day and he said, hey, George, you know, I've got an opening out in Oregon on the West Coast. And would you be interested in coming to work for me? It would be a you know full-time job. We'll pay for your school. You can go back and finish the last you know, 18 hours of your degree, get full benefits. We'll give you an F-150 as a company vehicle to drive. And that sounded like a really good deal. So it was one of the few times where I called up my dad and I said, hey, dad, I need some advice. And I kind of walked him through the proposition that Brad had given me and the benefits. And he said to me, he said, son, you can always go back and start another business. But this will give you the opportunity to earn that piece of paper and be a member of that club of having that college degree. And if you don't like it, if that career path isn't for you, you can always go back to the shop. So gave it a couple of days, worked up the courage to talk to my partner, Martin. And at this time, at this point, uh, Carson, who we had built that S4 RS4 conversion for, he was helping out and he was kind of our third de facto employee. He was very good with sales and customers. I basically sat them down and told them about this opportunity I had. And Carson stops me about two minutes in and said, Hey, hold on. He's like, I just recently had a death in the family. I had an aunt in California pass and she left me a bunch of money. He's like, why don't I just buy out your share of ownership in the company? You can go pursue your chemical engineering career. And Martin, and I will basically keep MS performance going and run that business. And that is how I bridged the gap from being a business owner to selling my first business to going back to school and starting the next 20 year journey into chemical engineering. And then right now, again, can you kind of describe what you do, uh, what you oversee briefly um, before we call this uh, definitely only episode one? Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like we're on part one of, of a multi-part uh, interview we'll be doing. <laughs> definitely. Uh, we, we have a lot of gaps to fill. And, and again, you pre-answered a lot of my questions that I was jotting down. And you're, you're, you're a great guest. I really appreciate you being on. Um, but no, really, thank you, Matt. Kind of describe like what you're doing now and how that ties back in uh, to the motoring world. Yeah, so, so absolutely. So fast forward 20 odd years, I am now the global director for a company called McDermott and Vio. So McDermott and Vio was a company formed through acquisition by Element Solutions, which is a multi-billion dollar public corporation, stock ticker ESI, you can look them up. So they formed McDermott and Vio about four years ago, be four years in this coming July, to become the sustainability, the ESG arm of Element Solutions. And we can get into, you know, kind of my background, my evolution uh, with McDermott on another episode. But basically what I do now is I brought the aftermarket to McDermott. So McDermott itself, there's McDermott Industrial and there's McDermott Envio. We're the environmental arm. McDermott Industrial does plating chemistry. So they are the global leader in anodizing, plating, chrome, nickel, zinc finishes. And who uses the bulk of those things? The automotive industry, the OEMs. So they supply plating chemistries. They're written into specs for Toyota, for Continental, for Eaton, for Mercedes. So it really has brought me full circle back into the automotive world, aerospace, Tesla, uh, space, you know, just, just anything mechanical. I've kind of I've worked a way to get my chemical engineering career back into an automotive field. So what I did is I took the passion I had when I was younger and modifying these cars and performance 
And I created an aftermarket side to McDermott and Vial, which was really just capital equipment to build wastewater systems to clean up this chemistry that McDermott Industrial was supplying and, and creating very toxic water. So they bought these companies and formed a in Vio out of these multiple companies they bought to create capital equipment to treat this water. And I brought the chemistry side and I brought the service side and I said, okay, that's great. You guys sell these systems, but what about taking care of the customer after? What if they want upgrades? What if they need spare parts? What if they need service help? And in my mind, it was all the framework of what I had done in automotive, but we created a service business and now I run that service and the commercial initiatives, uh, globally for that company. And it's all implying the same types of uh, lessons learned from my very early automotive days. And I want to end with that, you know, as I'm sitting here listening and I've luckily had to do very minimal talking because that's the whole goal of this. I just want to hear stories and I want to share your stories. You're like one of the greatest evolution of a car guy stories that I've heard in a very, very (laughs) long time. You know, you've, you've done, I mean, I've talked to a lot of folks who, Everyone's different. Every story is different and unique in their own way. And you have one of those evolution stories. You just kept building and growing and like getting deeper into the circle that is the motoring world. And it's just, it was awesome to hear about it. Again, we'll need to come back and do a deep dive from 2004 to 2024 because there's a big, big gap we need to fill. So we're, we're definitely going to have you back, man, a thousand percent. Oh, absolutely. It'd be a pleasure to. And some of the best lessons I ever learned were in that gap. And that's really what I could dive deeper into with you and your audience about how those fundamental physical skills became intellectual skills and really what led me into the sales side and evolution of my career and uh, the entrepreneurial journey. So uh, I look forward to coming back and talking in deep detail. Fun, And with my move to Florida coming up, maybe we can do it in person. Yeah, we might have to do that, man. That'd be great. And uh, there might be a lot of folks uh, out there, young bucks, who uh, might want to reach out to you because, you know, you and uh, my other two guests have had some pretty incredible stories. And uh, I think they have been reached out to by several of my listeners. So if you could please share your social media so that they can uh, reach out to you, um, direct message you, email you if uh, they have any questions, if you're okay with that, if, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Easiest way is my company, The Iron Cartel. Go to theironcartel.com. There's a contact form on there. You can get in touch with me. On Instagram, it's officially George underscore TX is one of the best ways. And George Monteith on Facebook. All right, George. Again, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day to share your story with us. We will have George back and uh, we can't wait to have a part two, maybe even part three. And uh, you have a great rest of your day. And uh, for all my followers, have a great uh, rest of your week and we'll see you next time. Today, I just wanted to take a moment and talk about our show sponsors. First up is Iron Cartel Apparel. Go check them out right now, theironcartel.com. They are launching January 1st. New you, new us, new look. Awesome apparel, shirts, hoodies, workout wear, lots more coming. Supplement line launching in June. Super excited about them. Second one is Podcastle itself is a sponsor of ours. Look for the link in our bio to start your own podcast and get special discounts. 
Our other sponsor today is My Content. Are you stuck with your social media? Is it eating up too much time, creating content, posting content, doing all that? This is where My Content makes your life easier. What you'll do is you go into My Content, you'll create a persona, you'll create a voice, you'll tell it what to do, and then every day in your email, you'll get seed content about the topics of your choice that you can literally cut, paste, tweak, and you're done. It'll take your couple hours a week of social media content creation into maybe 10 minutes a day. Follow the link in our bio for an exclusive trial and a 30-minute training video, step-by-step, everything you need to do to make my content work for you. 